Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. So what's going on, Devlin? <laughs> I don't know if you can hear in my voice, but I'm just getting over laryngitis. We had a bit of uh, a disruption in our production schedule because... A week or two ago, you infected me, I think, not to point fingers. <laughs> what, just because I had laryngitis? <laughs> yeah. So now, um, now we're a little behind, crunching on six episodes. But if you're hearing this, it probably went okay. So um, are there any uh, songs in this episode you want to highlight? Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about why this song uh, makes sense as we get into the episode. But the song I want to highlight for you off the top is Garbage Man by The Cramps. So this is episode seven of season two, and the title of it's Handshake, which doesn't immediately make sense to me. Yeah, I'm not really a big fan of shaking people's hands either. <laughs> Actually, my handshakefulness has really improved this quarter. Have you been practicing? I have been practicing. Do you have like one of those grip weight things to like uh, work out your hands? I'm going to get one. <laughs> but what um, does a handshake maybe mean in this context? Yeah, in this context... Um, well, well, kind of. It's it's based on a handshake in reality. It's kind of like I'm I'm introducing myself to you, and once we've met, we kind of have established um, a secure line of communication. So one kind of handshake um, is called the um, Diffie-Hellman key exchange, and it's a pretty cool thing that kind of revolutionized cryptography when it was first theorized. I think around forty or fifty years ago. So. Um, to give you like a very simple, accessible explanation of it, one way we can go over this is um, picture a color in your head. Don't tell me what it is. I'm picturing a color as well. And now say that there's a deck of cards that has random colors in it, and we draw a color that is yellow. Okay. So what color do you get when you mix yours with yellow? Orange. Yeah, so this is a bad example because I can tell what your color is. In real <laughs> life, you wouldn't be able to. But when you mix my color with yellow, you get green. So when we mix orange and green, we get some nasty brown color. Again, colors are not very good examples, I guess. But you can imagine now, if we were to take that color and uh, like maybe pass a journal back and forth in that color, we would be able to verify that um, I was talking to you and only you, and you were talking to me. And also, it has a property called um, forward secrecy, where... I, I, I use some Sherlock skills here to find out that your color was red. Good sleuthing. But, um, yeah, but... Um, just because I know that your color is red, I can't go and decrypt all of your conversations retroactively because I also need that random color that we drew, which is called the nonce. So once we shake hands and we kind of get this color, and in reality, it's not a color. It's like a really big, huge prime number, um, but it kind of is a, a good example. Um, once we have this color, it just proves that we're talking to each other. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry to dive deep into the nerdery right at the gates here, but I get really excited when it comes to key exchanges. Well, let's maybe dive back into the storyline. So when we start off this episode, this is a Joanna Wellick flashback. Yeah, it, it was a little disorienting at first because I didn't really realize that it was a flashback to begin with. When Tyrell started coming down the stairs, I was thinking, it is so Mr. Robot that they would just bring back Tyrell all of a sudden with no real bells or whistles. The thing I think that clues you in is this is obviously a happier time. So the Wellicks seem happy together. They're at an e-court party which they would probably not be invited to these days. 
Um, I think that she says something about um, getting her cheap earrings, which she's mentioned a few times in this series. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into the earrings. This is actually, uh, you've been talking a lot about how the Tyrells are kind of like um, Macbeth. And this party, the party scene, it actually seems a lot like that because um, she basically commands Tyrell to, to sleep with that woman to get the cheap earrings. Yes, and that's their first date. It's revealed to us later. Um, the next thing that happens with her, she's she's walking down the street with her stroller back in present time. I guess um, she was kind of thinking back to a happier period of her life because she's not really doing so well with Tyrell's absence. Um, and her day gets a little worse when she's walking her stroller. Do you want to talk about that bit? Yeah, because uh, I guess I'll call them a protester, runs up to her, throws red paint all over her and screams, capitalist pig! <laughs> I, I love this, to be honest. And I also really loved... Um, the cinematography where she just starts screaming, but it's um, silence with just like the credits and stuff playing over it. Yeah, it's a really nicely done scene. Joanna's out to check the mail because she keeps getting creepy packages. And what's in the weird package today is, I guess it's a picture from someone's sonogram. Yeah, I, I didn't really know sonogram, ultrasound, whatever it's called, but that is what it is. And so a little detail, I'm sure we'll come back to it later. I really, I really don't know what they're hinting at with all these weird gifts. They're all baby-related and all creepy, and that's all I have so far. So one thing we're noticing when we're looking at our notes for this episode is that it's, um, it's one of those episodes that jumps from storyline to storyline very much with a bunch of really short scenes. So we think it would be really disorienting if we were to do the same thing in podcast form. So what we're going to do is just um, carry through with Joanna's storyline until the end of that in this episode. And um, next we see her... Um, I don't know if you remember from episode eight, but Aaron and I are brother and sister, so it is always awkward to discuss Joanna's weird BDSM stuff. Um, I wonder what notes you had about that. Well, so Joanna, she kind of calls the shots in all of these scenarios. So I find it really amusing in a weird way to watch her try to coach Derek on how to strangle (laughs) her better. One thing I'm surprised, um, maybe you have a note about this, but there's a shot in this, um, this scene that references American Psycho as he's pulling the long blade out of the icebox. Oh, I didn't notice that. Um, Derek's got an ultimatum for Joanna because, remember, they haven't been seen in public. They've been traveling separately. And so I guess it's his 30th birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday <laughs> to this poor... Guy, I don't even know how he's going to be used to further serve the Wellick agenda yet. Um, but he says they go out together in public or it's over. I think that what he realizes is that she's still kind of um, half attached to Tyrell. And maybe it's not only that she doesn't really want to be seen with him, but that she is waiting for the possibility that he'll still come back. Because I don't trust that her feelings for Derek are particularly genuine oh no I don't think that any of her feelings are genuine no and so I think you know she would happily I think he is a placeholder for Tyrell I'm not exactly sure what function he I mean I don't think he has a current function really not right now but we do see how it plays out in the finale not to not to get too far not ahead. to get too far ahead but so strong ultimatum but she doesn't go to the party no and afterward um there's a bit of a confrontation. The, the ultimatum was that had she not gone to the party, that would be the end of their relationship. So um, Derek's understandably a little upset that she wasn't able to go to the party, or chose not to go to the party more specifically. But um, when he confronts her with this, uh, the, the actual breakup, she reveals that she has a gift for him. So she got him a special present from her lawyer. Uh, she got some, it's divorce papers. 
So again, in this episode, we're making an effort to consolidate some of the storylines because there are a lot of short scenes that move around. So now let's talk a little bit about Angela. I really enjoy Angela's current storyline. I'm really interested in it too. And I'm a bit worried for her when Dom shows up at her desk. Yeah, that was um, how her storyline ended in the previous episode. And they were kind of picking up where that left off. Angela has just um, hooked up the femtocell and the FBI office in her uh, e-court building. And Darlene has started to exfiltrate data um, from the femtocell. So Dom, I think, um, she she noticed that Angela wasn't supposed to be there. And now she's confronting her about it. But she does it in a way that is... Um, kind of subtle and not very heavy-handed. What do you think about that? I like that she's always fairly artful about her approach. Like, I think her strength as an interrogator is that she she's not abrasive. She's not trying to bad cop any of this, even though she, in an underhanded way, kind of is. So I don't, you have never heard of the series Death Note, have you? No, I haven't. So it's, I think the original version is a manga, and there's an anime ad- adaptation, uh, live-action movies as well, including one that just came out. Um, this, this specific scene really reminded me of that, because that show is about um, somebody who kind of... They get a supernatural ability to kill people from anywhere in the world, and they use that to kill criminals and try to make the world a better place. But um, almost immediately, a detective named L uh, starts to kind of catch on to them. And they ultimately join the same detective team, and they're kind of trying to catch this killer while the killer is actually on the detective team. So the reason it reminded me of this, though, is that um, in Death Note, the detective knows that the killer is the killer the entire time, but they can't really overtly prove it. So when they're when they're talking to each other, there always is kind of like a, a subtext where they know that the other person is an enemy, but overtly they're very friendly. So I really got that impression here because... I think that Dom already knows that Angela's trouble, and she already knows exactly what Angela's done, but she's just not ready to short cards yet. I think that you're right in that. I think Dom is very perceptive and usually one step ahead of her team, trying to convince them that they need to go down the road she's going down. One other um, point I want to mention here, I'm reading uh, Kevin Mitnick's book, The Ghost in the Wire, right now. In it, he talks about encountering at some point an FBI agent named Dominic Domino. Uh Oh, that sounds familiar. Well, and I thought that sounds an awful lot like Dominique DiPiero, which is this character's name. That could definitely be a reference. So I think that might be a nod to the Mitnick story. You said they were even an FBI agent, right? They are an FBI agent. Yeah, that's that's too, uh, too close not to be intentional. Exactly. So neat little parallels there. So another thing that I think, um, like, we know that Angela is starting to become a very good social engineer. In fact, just in the end of the previous episode, she um, brushed off the FBI bro by creating that uh, lunch date. And Angela uses a, a technique here to kind of get to the bottom of a lie, where you just kind of press for more and more information and kind of make them, uh, make them contradict themselves. So I think that Angela kind of plays her cards well because she answers all of Dom's questions. And she says, like... I was just meeting my friends. We were making plans to get lunch together. We're going to this place. But I think that Dom is just stringing her along because she eventually asks a question that Angela doesn't have an answer to. And she just has to say, I need to get back to this call. And I think that that's kind of like Angela admitting defeat in this kind of social engineering chess game because she's not able to keep up with Dom's line of questioning. I think that's why Dom shifts gears on her. Angela answers her questions in a sort of satisfactory way. 
and she kind of changes the game when she says, you know, your story fascinates me. So she obviously is intimating here that she's got all kinds of background knowledge about Angela. She tells her that she will be coming back for a formal statement. So she's also putting her on warning that that's to come. And I think what the sort of sneakiest moment is Dom just says to her before she leaves, you know, whatever this is, this isn't you. That reminded me of um, the text message that they sent to Shuri when they were invading Steel Mountain. Because I have no idea what that means, but it's vague enough that it kind of makes me worry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure she's sweating buckets at this <laughs> point, which is too bad because she's got to go to that lunch with that FBI bro. So continuing along with Angela's storyline, as soon as she's able to get out of um, her office where she planted that femme to sell and hack the FBI, she just uh, starts heading home. You notice that there have been, um, th there's a lot of garbage piling up, and I think that relates to the song you picked earlier, so I was wondering if you wanted to say anything about that. So here we see that the garbage isn't being collected because people can't afford the private companies they used to use to pick it up. So there's this whole black market trade in collecting trash and burning it. I believe it's a cry for strong public services, you know, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so there's garbage burning. It, it looks a little bit dystopian, right? Like this is New York City and there's just trash barrels on fire. And I think that it kind of, um, it reminded me of the scene in the E-Corp bank. We kind of are starting to realize that this hack had really big repercussions for the average person. So Darlene is waiting for Angela at her apartment. I'm surprised she didn't just break in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that she had actually. But she's actually there kind of to come clean because remember, there's that awkward scene where Angela and Cisco pretend not to know each other, but obviously Angela now knows everything. Yeah, I think that um, like she is coming clean, and one quote that stands out is, uh, no more smoke screens. But I thought it must be intentional that she said that while she was smoking a cigarette, because maybe she still has uh, a few personalities, so to say. Angela's been hanging on to a lot of resentment um, since their childhood, really. But Angela didn't really need Darlene to reveal this to her because she says she knew it all along because when they were little kids, she and Elliot made her watch that shitty, scary movie. I so wouldn't call it shitty. <laughs> I haven't even seen it yet. <laughs> but so she recognized those masks right away. She's known all along and she's done a very good job of keeping that close to her chest right until this moment. Angela takes a little field trip. She heads to Walmart, a place I imagine she does not frequent. Is it actually a Walmart? I remember they went to a non-Starbucks cafe in one episode, so I wonder if this is like a non-Walmart department store. Well, it actually is because it's called something like E-Mart. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the branding is obviously derived from Walmart. Well, the colors are the same and the uniforms are the same. And so, you, you know, you can find the parallel, <laughs> but it's also the inference is that it's controlled by E-Corp and owned by them. Yep. Uh, there, there definitely is a lot of Angela in this episode, that's for sure. She's um, taking this field trip to meet her dad, who works there now. Which is... A sad thing because we know Angela's dad is totally broke after all of the medical bills from her mom's illness years and years ago. And so he's, you know, kind of in his retirement age, still working at this job. She's there at first seemingly to persuade him to settle the lawsuit because if he will agree to remove the condition that independent inspectors come into the plant, this is a done deal. That's all they need. And I guess Angela thinks that's in everybody's best interest. I think she believes she can manage it from the inside. Oh, yeah, I guess she says something like that, because um, she also says that they respect her opinions and that she kind of has the power to do what she wants there. Yes, and her dad's not having any of it. So he says that she's basically unrecognizable and that he won't agree. And that's when you see that she didn't really come there to convince him at all. She just came for a courtesy. 
because she's already got the signatures that she needs to settle the lawsuit or remove the condition. And so with or without him, that's going to go forward. So the question that he has for her at this point is, uh, what's in it for Angela? And I don't really know what is in it for her so far. I think what she believes is in it for her might be different than the actual outcome. She seems to believe she's in a very powerful position. I don't think that's the case. She's actually pretty vulnerable. I mean, she works for these people and she's a PR person. So what could she really do? I also, my note here is that's cold, baby girl. That's real cold. Yeah. It's a real contrast to the other scenes we've seen with Angela and her dad, where they tend to have very good uh, rapport and stuff. And so obviously that's changed as she is changing and evolving in this new power structure she's a part of. This is our uh, penultimate Angela scene, and she's meeting with Price. She's quite the little mover and shaker these days. She's got a lot going on. Angela asks Price why it was so critical to remove the inspectors, the independent inspectors from the settlement. Because she's, even though she's sewn it all up, she still has questions about why he wants that. He doesn't give her any kind of satisfactory answer, of course, because he's Price, and that's his deal. But when Terry Colby brought her on, he had led her to believe she was going to be able to make change. Because remember, he calls on her to try to make change from within the system. So she says that she's, I mean, she's done all the work to end this lawsuit, this huge public scandal for them. She wants to be moved to risk management. And I guess um, by, by settling this lawsuit, she's kind of got herself in Price's good graces. So she feels she could make an ask of this. And that's also, I think, why she feels comfortable getting rid of the inspectors, because now she expects she's going to be able to have some oversight, some control over the situation. So this is a bold play that Price thinks is pretty stupid. <laughs> it's all kind of falling into place, though, isn't it? It is, but I'm nervous for it because Price says she's squandering her capital by doing that. So I, he sees that as a useless piece. Well, that must kind of um, be a bit of a red flag for him because I think that he's probably smart and perceptive enough to know that if somebody is um, making a lateral move like this, to them it's probably not a lateral move. So this kind of reveals a bit about Angela's intentions to Price. It's um, a special day for Price. It's his birthday which he asks Angela to celebrate with him. It's interesting because you so rarely see, especially a woman character, just say no. Especially to Price. Like, he is one of the most powerful people in the world. But I love that she does and that he, I guess he spends it alone. I don't know how he spends it. <laughs> so in this podcast, I've talked a lot about um, cinematography. And I, I honestly don't know the first thing about it. Like, I'm a total idiot amateur about it. But this show, and specifically one shot in this scene, kind of made me, made me more aware of what people are capable of when it comes to cinema. There's one shot where they're both sitting down on the couch with a gigantic blue painting behind them. And you just kind of see their heads poking out in the bottom center of the frame. And that was just gorgeous. I think I took a screenshot and sent it to you to get you to watch the show. I think that might have been what finally tipped the scales. So this is the ultimate Angela scene. <laughs> and by that, we don't mean the best one. We just mean the last one. But she gets herself moved to risk management, where she is, I would say, completely out of her depths. Do you, do you notice the risk ahead sign that they very prominently show in this scene? Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, it, it pops up in a few other scenes, actually. But I think that that's it, it's telling us very directly that she's in a risky situation. She tries to insinuate herself into a daily debrief meeting, which is well above her pay grade, I would say. And she's just not being subtle about her intentions or any of this stuff. Before you go too far, um, the way she gets herself into this meeting, like you said, it's a, a director level. 
but she uses a bunch of buzzwords and corporate lingo to kind of socially engineer her boss into allowing her into the meeting. What she says is something that, like, I feel like I've said it before, where it's like, what is the best way for me to add value? Which is just, like, corporate bullshit, but it, it works. Or you can totally HR speak this. Like, I just want to accelerate my onboarding process. How can I leverage my synergy? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a... Lean Sigma green belt. And uh, anyway, I'll stop. I'll stop. But she gets herself into this meeting and she pretty promptly plays it wrong. Yeah, she kind of uh, overplays her hand here. What's interesting is the lawsuit that they're discussing is a class action suit over water quality in Flint, which obviously very real tie in to all of the water issues uh, that Flint, Michigan has had. So she gets herself into the daily debrief meeting and uh, out of it just as quickly. I want to circle back. We mentioned that Darlene was lurking outside Angela's apartment. There is one more piece of the Darlene story in this episode that we want to talk a little bit about. Yeah, they kind of plant a seed for something that doesn't really pay off for an episode or two. But it is a really important detail. Darlene goes back to new F Society headquarters. So she's at the Smart House. Mobley, Cisco, and Trenton are all there. And they're all uh, seated at the laptop. It looks like they're reading something there. But you don't really know what. It's interesting because at first I read their body languages. They all look pissed. Oh, me too. Uh, I thought they looked pissed and like scared. Like they weren't really sure what they were looking at. Pretty quickly, though, like... I think Mobley smiles first. They start smiling. So we don't really know what's going on yet, but they say that it's going down tomorrow. And that's it for Darlene in this episode. So now we're going to be um, carrying through with Elliot's storyline. And there's definitely a lot to cover here. It'll probably take us right to the end of the episode. It begins, um, again, we're kind of coming back to the beginning of the episode, but it begins with Elliot in this dungeon. So he's still in the dungeon. He and Mr. Robot are, he and Mr. Robot are kind of back to their old dynamic. What do you mean by that? Like they're having a bit of a scrap. Uh, Elliot wants information. Mr. Robot won't give him. I guess it's an interesting contrast with um, the previous episode after Mr. Robot had kind of shielded Elliot from the abuse that he was suffering. It seemed like they kind of um, improved their relationship a bit there, but it's still kind of rocky. I think so, because what Elliot most wants to know and what he can't learn is why Mr. Robot was trying to hide Tyrell. Mr. Robot probes what's the last thing Elliot remembers about the scene at the arcade. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I think that the last thing he remembers is popcorn and uh, Chekhov's gun inside it. I love that. That an- I wonder if when Chekhov thought of that, he knew that forever after, that would be a useful tool for <laughs> us to explain plot devices. Elliot's kind of realizing that he did it, whether it was Mr. Robot or Elliot Prime, that he was responsible so they both, in fact, claim responsibility for taking that gun out of the popcorn and shooting Tyrell. I, I think the question here really for us is, is Tyrell alive or dead? Which is still unanswered. <laughs> um, it's like Schrodinger's businessman. Yeah, Schrodinger's <laughs> businessman. We put him in a business card holder and he's both alive and dead inside <laughs> of it. All right, I should stop. That's a dad joke, I think. Um, So they both claim responsibility. And that, I believe, is the end of the dungeon scene. So Elliot is uh, kind of uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire. So he's taken from the dungeon basement area, which actually, as an aside, remember in the last episode where Ray very menacingly talks about the basement where his dog was confined when she died? I wonder if that's the same one. I think it's Maxine's basement. That's a little creepy. 
So he gets taken into Ray's office. He has got to get this site migrated for him. That's how he can remain useful. But I think he is afraid that once it's over, Ray might kill him. Yeah, he needs to stay useful. So as soon as the the work is done, what's his purpose? Elliot does end up successfully migrating the site. Uh, it seems like they're back online. They actually have vastly increased traffic. And um, tuck that in your head because that's, that's going to come up later. Um, they, they lost um, 200 grand though from this downtime. So that kind of gives you uh, a, bit of, um, a bit of insight into the scale of this website. I think, too, they give you that figure because what you assume from that is that they want that back in some fashion or another. They want some retribution for the money that they've lost. It wasn't even really Elliot's fault, though, at all. Like, he did not have anything to do with this. <laughs> I think Ray understands that because he asks Henchman 1 to step out, and he asks Elliot for a private game of chess. Which is super weird. Like, w- would you accept playing chess right now? I think at this point, I have to accept whatever Ray asks me to do. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Unless I want to lose my rat tail. <laughs> you know? Gross. Rat tail, uh, <laughs> oh, that whole that whole thing was was gross. So Ray, remember how terrifying Ray has become. Ray is acting very differently. He thanks Elliot for moving website. Not just for that. There's this whole sort of um, spiritual piece that Ray goes into about how he thought he was going to save Elliot, but Elliot has in fact saved him. Interesting. I'm not really sure how I interpret that. Oh, it's going to become clear in a moment. <laughs> this is actually a very short setup payoff scene, which is not typical for this show either. He explains that his wife had actually set up the site. She was in some kind of tech-related field, so she was the expert, and he himself had never looked at what was on there. He had thought it was best not to look. So this, what Elliot exposed, also exposed Ray to the depths of what I think he suspected was going on but hadn't ever really seen with his own eyes. So Ray says that this site made them the kind of money that makes you look past right and wrong. You know, um, I don't know if we mentioned this in a previous episode, but you had talked about Silk Road and Ross Albrecht, right? Yeah, that's right. So we, we'd also mentioned that he was known as Dread Pirate Roberts, but the thing I don't remember if you mentioned that I want to clarify again now is that as in the, the character in The Princess Bride that Dread Pirate Roberts references, it's a multiple-use name that kind of has successors. So first off, um, the, the successor is the name of another episode in this season. But um, this website was built by Ray's wife, and then he inherited it. So I think that's, again, another connection to the real-life Ross Albrechts. Oh, and also, I was like, there are a lot of things that where I think a lot of lay people watching the show don't understand the tech inference. So also the idea of a successor in that way, I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting to me. I don't know the first thing about chess. Like I actually was pretty good at it when I was like six years old or something like that. And then I forgot about it. But um, I just knew that these chess moves, they're definitely important, but I don't have the skills to interpret them. I don't either. So if any listeners have any particular insight into chess, I mean, that may be because in chess, there are certain classic moves and formations. You know, if anyone's got a reference for us, we'd love to hear it. When we get to, the, we're sort of building towards the the climax of this scene. Ray acknowledges that what he did, he says it was weak. What was? All of his behavior. So setting up the website, profiting oh. from it, um, having 
Elliot beaten, having RT beaten, all of that's kind of captured. All the violent things he's done to try to make some money for himself, he acknowledges were wrong. And he asks Elliot, how much time do I have? Because we both know what you were going to do. He kind of knew this from the very beginning. And the chess symbolism becomes very overt here because he knocks over the king. So. The next thing we... Oh, you know, before we get better, cut too far, actually, I would mentioned that they have vastly increased traffic. And you would think that that's just because maybe it's running on better servers now or something. But Elliot explains that the way he turned in Ray, um, this website is what's called a Tor hidden service. But what he did also was publish it on the public internet and um, by advertising for it. So that increased traffic was actually over the clear net from people who were tracking him down. Can you imagine how much faith you'd lose in humanity if you could just see the kind of shit people would do in a marketplace like that on the open internet? Yeah, let's not think about it. Ray gives Elliot a pass and tells him he'd better get out of there. And as he does, the FBI is preparing to storm the office and take Ray away. This is exactly like the Ron's Coffee scene in the pilot, isn't it? It's exactly like that, where Elliot is the hero. You know, he's kind of saved the day in this one using his skills one thing I think that's interesting here is Mr. Robot is back and he says, so this, I think, again, twigs to the idea their relationship has improved and changed that you picked up on because he says our handshake negotiated us as partners. So instead of rivals, they're acting as partners. And of course, references back to the title of the episode. So right after um, the, the scene where Elliot turns in, right, there's a bit of uh, in, an insertion where we see uh C-SPAN on the TVs at Walmart. So we're kind of twisting up the chronology here, but I hope it all makes sense to you guys. So what you see on C-SPAN, this is probably the most exciting day of, I want to say it's Congress, uh, or at least miscellaneous (laughs) government function. I apologize. I don't clearly understand how American government works because we are in a... I don't think anybody does anymore. (laughs) Does it work anymore? (laughs) It's just quite a bit different than the Canadian system. So the uh, remember back to that bull statue outside of the stock market? I was wondering what they were going to do with that. So um, when they cut off the testicles of the bull, (laughs) uh, they use them now to drop it through the ceiling. Um, So I guess this is the DC op that they've been talking about. Good job, F Society Bro 1. You made it. Yeah, we're ready. We're ready for the first appearance of Leon, Joey Badass, in this episode. That's what happens in the next scene. I love all of Leon's scenes. And as I learn more about Joey Badass, I kind of feel like he is... He he shines a bit of his personality through in this character, I think. I just assume that he is this character in his personal life, and there is no division between the two, because that pleases me. Um, So yeah, Elliot, he just turned in uh, Ray. But the next time he meets up with Leon, he actually denies this. Everyone's talking about it. People want some information. Elliot, I think, is trying to keep Leon out of it, maybe to protect him. Leon and Elliot are approached by a group of white supremacists. I also realize I'm not sure why I think they're white supremacists. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> I, just, I mean, I, kn- I knew they were white supremacists, too, but it was just like something about how they looked. So I, I guess that's probably a horrible thing for me to say. <laughs> so we've made assumptions based on their appearance our um our producer dave is making a gesture that they're all skinheads which is true uh no no they had the richard spencer haircut they have the richard spencer haircut oh i misinterpreted your gesture (laughs) 
so yeah i I think i think they're signaling that these guys are white supremacists but and that's where i have them described as everywhere in my notes but i realize that at no point does anyone refer to them that way that's an interpretation that we have made well they do kind of like uh, they say things white supremacists would say so it becomes kind of clear that that's true they're also very quickly They're also trying to get rid of Leon in this scene. Yeah, and they use all kinds of racially disparaging remarks, hence my, hence my remark. Yes, I think, I think we're solid on the white supremacy theory. I think we got this. Leon, is a, he's a good buddy, though, and he doesn't go. And Elliot kind of stands up for him. These guys are pissed because apparently they had a piece of Ray's action, so they lost access to all the bitcoins that they had associated with that tour site. I find it kind of hilarious that uh mr robot nazis are into bitcoin because that's also something that's happening like right now in real life good parallel mr robot leon says that elliot is sitting under the sword of damocles and so if we look back at that reference damocles i've never known how to pronounce that damocles good job <laughs> well if it's you not too- the <laughs> if you also had a useful degree in classics you would know but the story of that is that Damocles arranges to switch places with the king so he can sit in the throne. But the condition of that is there's a sword suspended over the throne that's held by only one horsehair, so it could fall at any time. So that descriptor is basically about by assuming power, you also assume risk. And that's the position Elliot's in now by taking out Ray and sitting in his throne. Elliot decides to go back to his church group to apologize for his outburst in a previous meeting i always think it's really sweet when he apologizes it reminded me of the i guess it was only hypothetical actually but the shot where he apologizes to bill oh yeah i like that the church leader um maybe as you would expect uh someone who runs a church group to be um she's very forgiving she thinks she has an insight into elliot though because she believes that he's talking to god and that she's seen him conversing with him yeah like the way she phrases it kind of um it makes you wonder where she's going with this because she says that she sees him talking to him and you wonder is it mr robot or is it god oh yeah see i just made the leap that for her like talking to invisible presence probably is god but of course because of the paranoia associated with it i wonder how elliot takes it Whatever she says to him kind of bolsters him because Elliot, by the end of this scene, is acknowledging he needs to ask Mr. Robot for help and step up and be a leader and finish what he started with F-Society. Continuing along, and so again, remember, we're, we're, putting, we're piecing together a lot of different short scenes with Elliot. Elliot is burning his red wheelbarrow notebook. Oh my God, I didn't notice it was his notebook. Yeah, he lights it. Hot Carla helps him. Man. burn it you know that actually is pretty important that isn't it and i just completely glossed over that that's i think that's important but it's easy to get lost in this scene because this is a very um terrifying confrontation between well the white supremacists and Elliot. yeah this was a really disturbing scene actually i think that um i i kind of have different categories for violence that is graphic violence that is um psychologically damaging and also violence that is sexualized and this is one of the the latter categories so i found it to be kind of disturbing it's really disturbing because the supremacists grab him they tell him he has too much courage and they're going to take it out of him so they beat him and then one of them is going to is going to rape him 
And I think what's shocking here too is when we think about depictions of sexual violence in media, it's usually a woman who's the victim. So it's especially jarring because it's such a different kind of sexual violence than we often see. And there's nothing subtle about it. No, nor is there anything subtle about Leon's reaction. Because Leon saves the day. Leon saves like five days. It's a disgrace. Oh, man. I love Leon so much. Um, so Leon comes up behind with a knife and just eviscerates these guys. All of them. All of he them. He seems to know what he's doing. Because he single-handedly takes down like five or six burly men. So uh, he's done a great job here. And this is where it, the character gets really, really interesting. Because Leon knows about a lot more than Seinfeld. <laughs> Leon says, you're going to get a letter Tuesday. Do what it says. So Elliot's got something coming to him next Tuesday. And then the most shocking part of all, he says, when you see White Rose, say I did good. So we now know that Leon and White Rose have been together this whole time. Yeah. And so Leon, obviously in some way affiliated with Dark Army and perhaps a protector to Elliot in all of this time. Yeah. I just find it fascinating that undercurrent possibly because i trust narrators too much um that doesn't that doesn't do well in the show it doesn't do well in the show because i'm so genuinely shocked and surprised by every twist that happens me too though I, maybe we're like the target audience for this show because the twists are just like some people pick up on them but i don't at i all. never <laughs> do i never do so i just have a big wtf beside this uh this scene the end of this scene i think the payoff is great loved it this is the ultimate Elliot scene, both in the sense that it's the last one and also the best one. Uh, he's meeting with Krista, and he's discussing the truce that he has built with Mr. Robot. So when that handshake established them as partners, that's a signal that the war for control and the sabotage is, is going to end. So it's really a change in direction for their relationship. But Krista, I think, is a little alarmed by that, because maybe she sees it as a, a descent into, well, really, a descent into madness. But wasn't that her advice to him? And I think that she notices that and feels a little guilty about it. Um, she also has that letter that, that Leon talks about. And it, she says that it's good news, but Elliot isn't really sure about that. Why do you think he's ambivalent about it? So I think that we need to be clear that the letter is about his early release. From prison. He's in jail. Elliot's been in prison the whole season. And when you look back, it makes so much sense that everybody would um, like go meet him in his mom's house. He never really sees them out in the world. They're always sitting directly across from him at a table. Um, the red, remember the red analog telephone that he uses at the house? Oh, wow. That's a jail telephone. Like nobody you know. has an old school landline. Like not, not a person like Elliot anyway. I should have been tipped off at that point. And if you go look at like the Mr. Robot subreddit or something, you can see that people had picked this up in the first episode. Like, I don't know how people do it, but people suspected this. And I think that that's just incredible. You beautiful geniuses. I don't know how you picked up on it. I think there were also some alternate theories. Some people perceived that it was an institutional setting of some kind, perhaps a psychiatric facility. Or... Well, that's kind of just a variant on the same plot, if you ask me. Exactly. Or, But in any way, I think people picked up on the idea that he was confined and under observation in some way that I definitely did not genuinely shocked in this scene. We leave this scene with Elliot's apology for breaking trust with the viewer. And having deceived us for um, did the we past trust him to begin episodes? with? The funny, obviously, I did. <laughs> uh, he says that he'd like it if we could trust each other again. Let's shake on it. What's your color? Red. I'm joking. We're gonna do this. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks a lot for listening to Mr. Rewatch. We recorded this episode back in downtown Toronto. If you enjoyed this episode today, we'd encourage you to consider contributing to LGBT Books to Prisoners. This is a trans-affirming, racial justice-focused prison abolitionist project. They send books to incarcerated LGBTQ-identified people across the United States. You can find them at lgbtbookstoprisoners.org. I'm Devlin. I'm Aaron. Bonsoir.